If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. This week, we have returned to the studio with Joss Lavery. Joss, I am currently alone in the studio pretending that you are here and we are recording a new episode. That's not true. I'm speaking to you in the past. You were here. We've already recorded this. I'm doing this alone uh, to perpetuate the fiction that this is a separate standalone episode. I'm lying to all of you, and I'm hoping that I get away with it. Um, But here we are once again, Joss and I, brand new conversation, tackling new letters. No continuity at all with the previous conversations you heard last week. Brand new session, brand new thoughts, brand new problems, brand new answers. Coming up next is two versions of the same question. Yeah. Um, They're both about how to deal with somebody in your life who's depressed, and they're sort of different forms of relationships, um, and, and they feel like really different responses, and it sort of interested me to have them both one right after the other. So I'm kind of eager to see how we feel about both of them. And um, if you would take away the first letter. Okie dokie. Take it away on our first letter. Please don't remove it. Okay. Uh, Depressed husband is disengaged from our marriage. My husband of five years and I had a really great relationship. My husband has stopped communicating and generally interacting with me, which is really sad for me because of how great our relationship was before. I've tried everything I can think of to re-engage him, give him some space, give hints for fun things to do together, requesting plainly what I want, encouraging him to tell me what he'd like from me, telling him I'm worried about him, that I think he should try counselling, or that we should try couples counselling, playfully telling him what I need, angrily telling him what I need. We fight regularly now, usually about how I'm mad at him for making me feel ignored again. Two years ago, we had the first of two miscarriages, then had our now eight-month-old son. Before then, husband had a series of painful life events, including quitting an abusive boss and losing two grandparents he was very close to. I think he hasn't healed and has just buried the pain of everything and now is drawing away from me because he's depressed. He thinks I'm just hormonal and looking for things to be mad at him for. He refuses counselling, says it won't help, 
This is not the marriage I signed up for. Any advice on how to connect again? I, I, I had such a different understanding of this letter right up until I got to the line where the letter writer said her husband thinks she's just hormonal. Yeah, that was the moment where the, the mood changed in the booth, listeners. We yes. both sort of winced at yeah. that moment. And, and I don't know if I just hadn't picked it up when I was reading it uh, or if there's something about hearing it said out loud. And um, uh, that's a pretty intense dismissal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sh- shading into a kind of abuse, I would say. Um, and I do want to bear in mind that if, uh, you know, I, I don't know if your husband has a, a, a diagnosis of clinical depression or if you've just experienced a more withdrawn and unhappy version of him. Um, uh, but uh, bearing in mind that sometimes people who are experiencing clinical depression can sometimes say things that they would not otherwise say, uh, which is not to say, therefore, it's fine and you shouldn't mind it. But I'm just not sure where to categorize that. Right. Like, is this a person who is so disconnected from his usual self that he's not able to speak like lovingly and appropriately? Or is this a person who's being an asshole? And um, like when his wife tries to say, you are sad and disengaged and I don't know how to connect with you. And when I tell you what you want um, or when I tell you what I want, um, you, you, you don't try. Um, and if his response to that is just, well, you're hormonal. I mean, that's a pretty awful, flat negation of everything. Must have been really painful to hear that. Um, and I have just a, a lot of solidarity and a lot of sympathy with you in, in that moment. That, that That's awful. And, and, and I can imagine that that was very painful indeed. This is a very difficult situation. Especially with the eight-month-old. Eight-month-old child in the house, depressed partner, um, and a depressed partner uh, whose depression is having a, a manifestly difficult um, and painful effect on the letter writer, um, and who refuses to get the kind of help that, that he may need. You know, Usually one would say that a relationship can work until one person stops participating in it and it sounds like he stopped participating in it um and yet with the with the eight month old there i mean it i can imagine that just intensifies this feeling of both the relationship is unbearable but also i need it to sustain uh this this family life that i'm building right right um and i would say uh, you know I think, you know, when you say this is not the marriage you signed up for, I hear that. I think that's true. Like, I don't think you're imagining this. I don't think that you're just hormonal. No. Um, and and my first two immediate pieces of advice is um, go to therapy by yourself right now. Um, one thing, uh, I, I was once in a relationship where I, I felt really convinced that uh, what the relationship needed was for the other person to go to therapy. I really wanted them to seek counseling. Um, I felt like they were suffering from something that they would have benefited from counseling from. Um, and what I wish I had done in that moment um, is said, and if you don't go, I'm going to go. Because I think when you want someone else to go to therapy, it's a really good time to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, it means you need therapy. Yeah. Um, so you should go. You should go by yourself. Um, your husband doesn't have to come. And you should do it to take care of yourself and to figure out, uh, you know, what it is that you need, what you're not, what needs you aren't getting met, identifying how it is that you handle feelings when they come up, how you uh, interact with your partner, uh, behaviors that you had in the past that you might want to change now, patterns you maybe couldn't have realized on your own. Like, um, go to counseling without him. Um Go right now. I mean, I know going with eight month an eight month old in the house is and a, like a recalcitrant husband is tricky, but um, 
you know, you don't say anything about not having any time or money for it. So if you are able to go, go, go right now. And the other one is, I think, this is not something you need to request. This is this is something that you need to tell your husband. Um, and that is this. Um, you are free to disagree with me. You are free to disagree with me about the nature of our relationship and the nature of our interactions. Um, if I say to you, I need this and I'm not getting it and I feel like you are doing X, Y, and Z and your response is, I disagree with you on every point, that's okay. You can do that. Um, you cannot tell me that the way I experience reality um, is imagined because I am a person who has hormones. Like that's that just needs to be off the table. No one should say that to anyone else. A of all, we all have hormones. Glands in our bodies are constantly pumping us full of them uh, to varying degrees. And that does not mean that uh, f- our feelings are made up uh, or that we can't engage with reality. <laughs> so let's just take that off the table. And and yeah, you just get to say to your husband, if you want to disagree with me, that's okay. Um, but have the honor to do so honestly without resorting to... You've recently been pregnant, so I bet you're making this up. Um, That's some bullshit. Um, And you need to just lay that down. Um, But yeah, go to therapy. Go by yourself. Um, Can we go ahead and call it sexist bullshit? Sure, we can call it sexist bullshit. Um, It's very silly. It's just silliness. Um, Yeah, and go by yourself. And, you know, hopefully therapy will give you some tools to uh, express yourself with your husband in a different way. And hopefully he will... um, if nothing else, be able to disagree with you better in the future. Um, And if all therapy does is help you figure out the best possible way to leave your marriage, then that's good too. That's good enough. That's a good enough outcome from therapy. I hope you don't have to. Um, Divorcing with a newborn is, I I cannot even imagine how how difficult that would be. Um, But, you know, things don't seem great now. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I I don't have very much to add to that. I agree with every word of it. But I guess there are two Two things that, that stick out to me. One is that I absolutely think you should go to therapy. And when you go to therapy, I think it's important for you to hear yourself uh, say things. Hear yourself describe this relationship in ways that may even be surprising to you. Uh, you know, you, you describe a really great relationship that took place in the past. I had a really great relationship. Um, but other than describing your husband's depression, you don't describe what this relationship feels like to you now. And that's, I think, something that you're going to have to hear yourself say out loud and find yourself developing new words for, uh, developing new sentences to describe. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that I do not doubt for a moment the seriousness of the pain that your husband has experienced in relation to the two miscarriages, the death of his grandparents, uh, the abusive boss, and then the end of the professional relationship. That stuff's real and that stuff's painful. And that stuff also has nothing to do with your feelings and your experience of this relationship. And there can be this real sense when people are in relationships with depressed people that because the depression is for good reasons, or at least explicable reasons, therefore I have an obligation to continue with it or to persevere or put my own feelings to the side or ignore the things that are making this relationship unbearable to me. You do not have to do that. That is not an obligation that being in this relationship entails. And you can be fully respectful of the difficulty that your husband's experiencing and also respectful of yourself and your own feelings and experiences in this relationship. Yep. No, I I agree with that so much. And actually, I'm, I'm angrier now than I was in the beginning, just thinking through like, who had the miscarriages? It was you. Yeah. Um, 
and and to hear like on the tail of two miscarriages uh when someone has withdrawn from every aspect of the relationship and you've tried everything you can to get them to re-engage well you're just hormonal like man fuck that yeah that is a terrible thing to say to someone much less someone who has lost two pregnancies yep um that's just like thumbs down to your husband for saying that um and i'm i'm just mad at him um I'm just mad. That was not an okay thing for him to say to you. Um, and I'm I'm really excited for you to get to go to therapy. And like um, you said, I think the one thing that the letter writer said about the way her marriage makes her feel is that she feels ignored. Yeah. And I think the good thing is that your therapist, a good therapist, will not ignore you. Yeah. Like you will be guaranteed an hour a week at least um, where someone is giving you like the full scope of their attention yeah. and paying attention to how you're feeling because it matters and it should matter to your husband. Um and I hope that you guys can work it out. And if you can't, I hope you can figure out what you need to take care of yourself with or without him. Mm-hmm. Man. All right. So this one is a totally different take. Uh, and it's a different kind of relationship. But again, it's this sort of um, question of, you know, how can I be there for someone in my life who's depressed? And and what rights do I have in terms of conversation and what I can ask for and what I can and can't do? Uh-huh. Um, so the subject line of this one is just, you read the last one, right? Yes, I did. Okay, perfect. Subject line of this one is just breaking up with a depressed friend. Now's not really the time, but I'm so interested in the language of breaking up with friends. Yeah. Uh, And and I find it kind of fascinating and kind of unnecessary. Um, There's not really time to get into that now, but I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Well, we can get into it, but maybe read a letter and then let's get into it. Okay, yeah. We'll save it for later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I missed you so much. Um. Dear Prudence, I've been friends with this guy since I was a kid. He's been struggling with depression for a while now, and because of this, he has no other friends. We're both in college now in different states. We don't have a ton in common anymore. We never see each other. I have many new friends in college who take up my time, and he adds a lot of stress to my life. We're in a situation where if he had friends other than me, I think we would naturally grow apart. However, since he doesn't, he's clinging to this relationship. He recently tried to commit suicide. How can I stop being his friend? Those last two sentences are intense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just right next to one another like that. They are very intense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my goodness. Um, I, I, I want to say one thing before we jump in, which is uh, the idea that your friend has been struggling with depression and because of this, he has no other friends. Yeah. I just want to poke at that for a second, yeah. which is um, there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Right. Depression does not make it impossible to have friends. Plenty um, of people with friends are depressed. Yep. Yep. Plenty of people uh, uh, have intense depression and friends. Uh, and and it is not because he is a depressed person that he does not have friends in his life. Um, it may be related to the ways in which he does or does not manage his depression. Yeah. Um, it may be less related than you are inclined to think. A person can be depressed and... Um, treat other people well. A person can be depressed and not treat other people well. A person can be depressed and isolated. A person can be depressed and try to force themselves to be among other people. So, um, you know, don't... Depression is, is already a really big force in your friend's life. Don't assume that depression is what makes friendships with other people seemingly impossible for him. That is extremely well put, I think. So... um he recently tried to commit suicide. 
uh, is a really difficult and challenging sentence to read. And I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for your friend and for you. Um, so I just want to begin by saying, I'm really sorry that the two of you had to deal with that. And I hope that he has some resources, at least, for figuring out uh, how to protect himself from that kind of thing in the future, uh, which may involve suicide hotlines. It may involve different kinds of uh, short-term, long-term therapy. Campus mental health services. Yeah. If there's any family. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it may be possible for you to help him with some of that, to give him phone numbers, but I also think you, you've, you've taken on a lot of responsibility already, and you do not need to carry this person's depression as, as an obligation. Uh, and I, I think it's important for you to both be minimally present at this point, it's difficult because I don't think this one has a kind of clear-cut answer in the way that the last one did, for me at least. I think some some expectation of of minimal presence is is reasonable at this point, uh, but I also think you are detaching and that is an okay thing, and mm-hmm. it's okay to recognize that that's happening for you. Yeah, I know I agree with that, and I think that's really fair too because I felt the same way, which is obviously not to say like you have to continue being his friend if it makes you miserable. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do anything. Um, but I, I, I feel like I see in this letter this idea underlying he doesn't have any other friends. So my two options of being in his life are this. One is I'm his only friend. Yeah. And if I'm his only friend, then that means I owe him a lot. And that means that he gets to put everything that would normally be spread out over five or 10 or 15 other people all onto me. And that's one option. And in that option, I'm stressed and sad. And the other option is I'm not his friend. Yeah. Because then I don't owe him anything. Um, and I think that's why the letter writer feels like a breakup is the only thing that is available to me right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to balance compassion and help for this other guy with, uh, you know, taking care of yourself. Um, and and to say it may it may seem impossible to think of. I don't know how I could be his friend and also not answer the phone if he calls me 15 times in a row. Yeah. Um, and, and it may be that you will try to set limits and find that you are not able to, that he does not respect or honor them. But I I do think it's worth trying just given right now where he's at again, not to say, therefore you're responsible. You have to walk on eggshells around him. And if you make a misstep, you know, his life is in your hands, but to say, you know, maybe I'm going to call him once a week. Um, and if he tries to get in touch with me and I'm busy, it's okay for me to say, I'm busy and I'll have to get back to you later. Like, that's okay. And that's not going to be what makes the difference for him between living and dying. Yeah. I think that's really important to bear in mind. But if you can see your way to, am I willing to email him once a week? Am I email, willing to email him once a month? Am I willing to uh, put him in touch with, uh, you know, the campus mental health services near him? Um, is there some form of contact I'm willing to maintain with him um, that's not daily, that's not weekly, that's not constant, um, but but that is letting him know at least that one person who's known him a long time wants him to be well. Yeah, and so that neither of you feels that you are the first call that he's going to make in moments of distress. Right. That there is some kind of, yeah, background continuity 
uh, but not that you are actually the same as a crisis hotline. Yeah, because if he's doing that with you, that's that's way too much, especially for somebody who's across the country. And, and yeah. you know, that's not your you you won't be a, you're like you're not equipped to help him with that. You're yeah. not a mental health counselor. You're not a first responder. You're not a doctor. You're not a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, and I think. It's really hard. It's really hard when you're faced with somebody on the other line who is distressed to the point of panic um, to do things like, I love you. I hope you take care of yourself. I'm going to go. Yeah. And and it sometimes feels like I can't do that. The only thing I can imagine is never taking their calls again. Um, but I, I do think it would be worth trying to set those limits, trying to think through what's the like least amount of contact that I'm willing to give and can I try to do it. Um, and if that means letting some calls go, and and not answering some texts, um, but occasionally trying to check in meaningfully and, and say, I hope you're well and taking care of yourself. Um, I would encourage you to try to do that yeah. before you say, I have to end this friendship. Yeah. I got to tell you, I, uh, I, I I have been in a situation very similar to this one hmm. um, a, a good long time ago. And I did not deal with it very well <laughs> in that situation, which is, I think, one of the reasons I'm stuttering a little bit now. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think uh, my experience in, in that moment was that I could only see that the two options that Mallory was just describing, the, the, the all or nothing version of events. And I think that my friends could only describe, could only see the situation in those terms as well. Mm-hmm. And it was then impossible for us to imagine any kind of reoriented friendship that wasn't then solely engrossed by my friend's experience of depression. Right. And and that's why I think sometimes you'll often see this very, you know, to use that phrase you mentioned earlier, tough love approach um, to depression that I think can be really helpful and is sometimes a little too pat, yeah. which is, you know, just bear in mind that you cannot make the difference between living and dying for someone else. And if they are encroaching upon, uh, you know, space that you consider yours um, to to say that's that's unacceptable and to move on. Yeah. And I think that's often necessary and a corrective for people who, who don't know how to engage with someone who is um, not getting the kind of help that they need. And as a result, um, you know, causing some some stress and pain for their friends. Um, but I think sometimes it can be uh, in a, a, a justification for um, a lack of compassion to people who are dealing with untreated depression, which is horrible. Yes. You know, it's a horrible thing and it wants you to be alone and dead. That's what that kind of untreated depression wants. And and to bear in mind both, it's absolutely true that you're not responsible for somebody else's life and death. It's absolutely true that um, you as a friend or a lover or, or a family member cannot be a doctor, an EMT, a psychiatrist, a suicide hotline responder um, at all times, um, and that you should not be asked to be, and that is okay to say no. Um, and then on the other hand, I think sometimes that can feel so cruel to us that we think, I, I can't do that and also remain in this person's life yeah. because to do so would feel so unloving that I would feel cruel. Um, when in fact it is not cruel. Um, and, and sometimes it is better to try to maintain a relationship to at least see if it's possible before deciding to end contact, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to know how to do. And, and I want to be careful about there are times when it's right to say our relationship needs to change fundamentally. And if you cannot, you know, honor these terms, then I need to walk away. And also times um, to say, 
here are my new limits. I am sometimes going to walk away in the moment. That does not mean I'm walking away from you as a person. Um, and I hope you will take those opportunities to turn to the other resources that you have. Yeah. Because um, I love you and I want to be your friend, but I can't be your life. Oh, listeners, if I've lost my train of thought, it is because we just took a five-minute baby break. It was a good baby. Uh, the former producer uh, of the Dear Prudence show, uh, Casey Miner, just came in and brought uh, her remarkable, sturdy young citizen of a child uh, into the studio, and I was allowed to to hold and coddle it, and, and I had a fabulous time. It was a very good baby. I have high hopes for this baby's future. Uh, I believe this baby is destined to become a, a, a captain of, of justice or, or something along those lines. Captain Justice. Captain Justice. Who's to say? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was very exciting. Uh, I'm still really thrilled. I was getting more of a Pebbles and Bam Bam vibe, but in a very good way. And those, they could be Captain Justice. Yeah. No, I, I think all of these are, are fabulous future possibilities uh, for the young uh, baby dear Prudence. And uh, the next letter is just, uh, you're just going to read it now. It's okay. going to happen. Excellent. Well, here we go. Uh, Subject, I like my stepdaughter more than my own. Dear Prudence, I am married to a man with two daughters and we have one of our own. We have my stepdaughters every other week and every other holiday. They are two and three years older than our own daughter. My daughter is in kindergarten now and she has defiance written into her DNA. Whether it is cleaning her room or practicing her ABCs, if she decides she does not want to do something, it is a battle no matter what. It has always been this way. My stepdaughters are a relief. They are polite, intelligent, and sensible. I never have a problem with them, not even when they were preschoolers. My own family prefers my stepdaughters. My own mother mentioned that they are easier to take out in public. I have not breathed a word to anyone about it, but it is always on my mind as my daughter grows older. Am I just a bad mother? I don't know what to do anymore. (laughs) This one's kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I I feel like the question is just... Are my stepdaughters easier than my daughter? And the answer seems like yes. Yeah, probably. Does that make you a bad mother? No. Does it mean that you need to do anything differently? Not really. Like, she's not describing, like, I find myself snapping at my daughter or comparing her to her stepsisters. Um, Yeah, it sounds like your daughter's more difficult. Yeah, I mean, the, the the main thing I keep thinking about this is that they are all very young. Right. Um, Your relationship to them is going to be... You know, and, and of course, young children have personalities and they have ways of differentiating themselves and uh, understanding social relations that are different. But they're all very, very young. Yeah. Um, I think all three of these kids are going to change quite a lot in the next 10 years. You're yeah. going to develop different relationships with all of them and that's going to be fine. Yeah, your kid can be smooth sailing and then they hit 12 or 15 or 17 or 25 and all of a sudden it is just like, who the hell are you? Yeah. Where did this come from? Yeah. Um, I, I, I managed to pull one of those. Me too. I was blonde. <laughs> I was a blonde baby. I was a blonde toddler. With everything that that entailed. And silent. Um, yes. I was yeah. like a silent blonde baby yeah I, I was an easy kid and then i turned 16 and i was just like i'm done yeah i'm done i'm this is we're on hard mode now no more mr nice mallory Orberg. yeah how dare you people clothe and house and feed and treat me well i'll show you yeah you sons of bitches i'm pretty sure i was a piece of scum from my childhood throughout my adolescence but very different kinds of scum yeah so bear in mind don't worry your stepdaughters might turn out to be monsters in just a few years yeah um and I say that a little lightheartedly because, uh, you know, I, I want you to think about this maybe a little bit more lightheartedly. And maybe maybe don't assign quite so much intensity to your daughter that, that like, defiance is written into her DNA. Um, which is not to say that, like, yeah, it sounds like she's always been a pretty, like, uh, 
pushy kid. But when you say a five-year-old has defiance written into their DNA, that kind of affects how you treat them. Yeah. And if you treat your daughter always like a difficult kid, she'll she'll probably oblige. Um, and so just just bear in mind that she's difficult right now, and she's difficult some of the time, and that's that's the kid you got. Um, and maybe at some point she will not be difficult about other things, and maybe there are ways that you get to redirect her or find things that she really enjoys doing. Um, or just other ways of engaging with her. But no, you're not a bad mom for being relieved that your stepdaughters are easier to deal with than your daughter. Also, I'm wondering whether this is a sort of Cinderella <laughs> sort of scenario. Yeah. We've I mean, got here. Y- you know, you also see them every other week and every other holiday. Yeah. So I- I'm wondering too if like the other mother in this story is just like, oh, my kids are monsters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when they go off to their stepmom's house, they're so well behaved and she has no idea what they're really like. But, yeah. You know. Um, yeah. You're, I, you're doing fine. It's yeah. okay. You're doing great work. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's not it's not going to be a huge problem, I think. I think that there are just going to be different ways of relating that are going to develop. And you're going to find different moments of defiance and resistance in each of these children. Yep. No, and, and nothing you're describing, like she doesn't like cleaning her room. She doesn't like doing her ABCs. Uh, and she, you know, likes to throw tantrums. Like nothing in there sets off alarm bells like, oh, man, you should get your kid to get treated. You know, if you find that the strategies you have for dealing with tantrums aren't working, feel free to try a different one. I don't want to get too far into specifics just because I'm very much not a a parenting expert. But like, no, uh, you're not a bad mom. You have a tricky five-year-old and a chill seven and nine-year-old. And that might change uh, at some point in the future. But for right now, be glad only one of your kids is a handful. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like it could be all three. That would be a real bummer. Um, You're not a bad mom. You're you're doing your best. And your kid's not a bad kid. Yeah, your kid's not a bad kid. Yeah. Your kid doesn't like doing ABCs or cleaning her room. I will share this. Okay. Which is as follows. So when I was little, um, my my parents often had to devise new ways of correcting my behavior. Like I was growing up just as spanking was getting phased out, um, like socially uh, among like our demographic. So, uh, you know, I, I got spanked a handful of times, but everyone was sort of embarrassed about it. Like, well, this seems... We're not going to do this. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they tried a lot of, like, timeouts and, and whatnot. And I was really, like, I would sit there in my little, like, timeout chair and be like, I don't mind this. I'm thinking in cartoons. <laughs> um, and so they you were. You still do that. <laughs> I still do that. Um, so they were often, like, on the hunt for what is an effective way to show Mallory that she should not repeat this behavior and that she should, you know, um, consider the ways of the righteous. And one day my mom hit upon something that I have never forgotten to this day. I don't remember what I did, but I got in trouble and I knew I was in trouble. And my mom said, I'm not going to give you a timeout because I know that those don't work. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I've won. And she said, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to McDonald's. And I was like, cool, great, great story. Um, and like, that was a big deal for us. Like uh-huh. we did not go to McDonald's often. That was kind of like a red letter day. And she was like, I've prepared a bag lunch for you, Mallory. Ooh. Yeah. Brown paper bag. Shit. Peanut butter, that is... <laughs> peanut butter sandwich, crusts on whole wheat bread. Uh, I think like some sliced apple and a carton of milk. Not even potato chips. Nothing. Damn. And the whole ride there, my brother and sister are like, McDonald's, yes, this is happening. And I was just like, stay calm. Like, yes, this is as bad as things have ever gotten. But 
she's a reasonable woman. She loves you. Uh, obviously, this is the punishment. When you get there and, and you are at McDonald's and, and you're within grabbing distance of a Happy Meal, she will surely relent. You know, like she will she will temper justice with mercy and she will she will give you what your siblings are getting. So I was like, it's OK. Stay calm. We get there. My brother orders a Happy Meal. My sister orders a Happy Meal. My mom hands me my bag lunch. And I realize I'm going to eat this peanut butter sandwich. And it was, (laughs) yeah, it was as if I had never met my mother before. I had no idea she was capable of this. And I gained a new respect for her that day and a new horror for living. Nancy Ortberg is a stone cold genius. And I just thought life is stern and life is earnest. Life is not a joke and I must mend my ways. You know what though? What? Do you remember what we did two nights ago? We went to McDonald's. <laughs> and how did you deal with that? Did I tell the story two um, nights ago? No, you ate two bags of McDonald's <laughs> food. I did. I was so hungry. I'd been on a plane all day and I'd missed lunch. Um, so I just thought, I'll have chicken nuggets and a Big Mac. And we sat in the parking lot of McDonald's and ate delicious food. And it was the happiest I've ever been. It was beautiful and glorious moment. Yeah. And, and I... Uh, all right. Wow, this was... Let's just lie on the floor for a little while. Yeah. This was so much. I've These I, were all enormous. <laughs> I've given so much advice. I just want to go back to McDonald's and get two dinners again. Ooh, do you? No, not at all. I could. I I think it'll be another year before I'm ready to go back to McDonald's, <laughs> but I will happily drive you to McDonald's as soon as we leave the studio, if that's what you want. We'll figure it out. Anything. It's almost your birthday, so... That's true. Joss, thank you. Thank you, Mallory. You are a shimmering, glowing star in the firmament. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for being had. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. It helps more people find the show and more problems find solutions. If you want me to hear your question, call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. money and transform your home with new appliances now at menards we offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today check out top appliance brands including KitchenAid, maytag whirlpool amana and criterion upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at menards shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at menards.com save big money at menards